Thank you, Jamie. Well, how do you respond when you don't get what you want? What do you do when you don't get your way? Say you apply to a program or apply for a job and you don't get it. You are romantically interested in another person, but they're not interested in you the same way. You ask your mom and dad for permission to get that phone or to get that game or to join that club and they say no. Or you have kids and you want them to stop doing something or start doing something. Or you want them to change the way that they're approaching things and they don't. Or you want that rate relationship reconciled but there's no progress. Or you hoped for that promotion at work and that your manager would implement some of your ideas and none of that has happened. Not getting our way can be frustrating and disappointing. It can lead to anger and to despair. Yet it happens quite often in life. And we often, or at least I, feel that not getting my way is bad. And that whatever is done or whatever happens now will not measure up to my way of doing things or what I think needed to happen. We, we think we know what is best in every situation. But is it possible that we don't? Is it possible that even some good could come out of not getting our way? Think, for example, of someone who wants to go down the highway at 140. But they don't get up to that speed. Before they get there, they're caught by the police. They're pulled over. They get a ticket. They are mad that they did not get their way of going 140 down the highway. But what if being pulled over by the police protected them from a loose patch of gravel on a curve that might have caused the car to flip if you were going 140? Is it possible that even when we don't get our way, some good can come out of it? And today we're going to look at the greatest example of someone not getting their way. We will see this person struggle mightily to conform their will to God's will, if the Father's will. Yet in the end, not getting their way brought immeasurable good to the world and to the lives of many of us here today or watching online. So we turn to the Easter story and we will follow some of the key events of Easter through the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to the Garden of Gethsemane today where Jesus went with 11 disciples minus Judas. So the 12 minus 1, 11 prior to his arrest. And we will see Jesus struggle, struggle in prayer as he faces the reality of going to the cross. And then we will see his resolve resulting from this time of prayer. And finally, we will look at two necessary responses on our part to Jesus' struggle 
for us. And I pray that God is going to use something from today to help you in some way in an area where you have not gotten what you've wanted or are not getting your way. So if you have a Bible, please find Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, or in the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 745. And today we're looking at verses 39 to 53. So Luke 22, starting in verse 39, and this is talking about Jesus. And it says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. If you have read all of the New Testament Gospels, you might have done what is a common practice, and that is bringing together all that we know about a particular event from all the Gospels. And every one of the Gospels talks about Jesus in the garden with his disciples. Matthew talks about it, Mark, Luke, as we see here, and John. And it is good to get a big picture so we can kind of see all the events that happened, to, to get us uh, a, a, a broad scope of the overall picture of the gospel and what's going on, but to actually get the specific message of each gospel writer, we have to limit ourselves to what that writer included in their account. And Luke writes to a non-Jewish official named Theophilus. And that's a Greek name, and at some point Theophilus became a Christian. And Luke tells us his purpose for writing in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. 
So Luke is writing to strengthen the faith of Theophilus and anyone who will read his gospel. And for those familiar with the other gospel accounts of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I want to notice or us to notice what Luke does not include. So first of all, notice Luke does not call the Garden of Gethsemane the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't even mention that. And maybe it's because Theophilus was a Greek. He was not resident to Jerusalem. He maybe didn't know the geography of Jerusalem that well. He maybe vaguely heard about the Mount of Olives. So he only mentions the Mount of Olives. And then the other Gospels reveal that Jesus and the 11 disciples went to this place and then that Jesus took three disciples, Peter, James, and John, further on to another place, and he told them that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then he asks them to watch and pray with him. And from there, Jesus goes beyond those three to pray. And he goes three times, according to the Matthew and Mark accounts. But Luke includes none of that information. So we need to look carefully at what Luke does include so we can gather the thrust of his point here. And he starts in verse 39 by describing the change in location from the upper room and the Last Supper to the Mount of Olives. And Luke also notes that they go to the place in verse 40. Not a place, the place, indicating it was a familiar place to Jesus and the disciples. And remember, Judas has already left. He's gone to get to the people who are going to arrest Jesus. And if Jesus wanted to escape, he would not go to the place. He would likely go to an unfamiliar place to increase his chances of escape. And then we must take careful note of what Luke includes next. In verse 40, we read, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Luke doesn't tell us who this was specifically said to. It seems that the saying is more important to Luke than the pers person or people that it was said to. And this makes sense when you look at the entire gospel of Luke with its great emphasis on prayer. And notice Jesus says almost the exact same phrase in verse 46, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So that command brackets this event, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And that is critical to Luke's purpose here. So what temptation? Might Jesus be warning whoever he's speaking to, we know as Peter, James, and John from the other gospels, what temptation is he warning them against? We don't know for sure, but it certainly involves aligning themselves with God's purposes. For a temptation is an invitation to go against God's purposes and will. So whatever Jesus meant here, he's instructing them to pray for the purpose of not giving in to temptation. And friends, do we ever pray that prayer? 
The Lord's Prayer says, lead me not into temptation. But do we pray that? That I will not enter into temptation. Sometimes we're so focused on getting our way, doing things our way, getting our will, that we would prefer to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. We like to elevate our will as supreme. And it's natural for us to do this because we all have a sinful nature and that sinful nature wants to satisfy its desires in a sinful way and sin elevates our will above God's will. So one way to combat that natural sinful tendency is to pray for strength to not enter into temptation, to not to give in. And Jesus instructs the disciples to do this. And then he goes a stone's throw away to pray by himself. And commentators notice his posture of prayer. Jesus kneels to pray. And to us, that's like normal. But it was an uncommon posture of prayer. In that day, the most common posture was standing with your arms raised to heaven. You only knelt to pray when you were desperate. And then Jesus prays one of the most profound and heartfelt prayers uttered in all of history. And this prayer has direct impact on your life and my life. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Friends, we need to pause on the first half of that prayer. You realize what Jesus is asking here? He's asking to not go to the cross. If you are willing, Father, remove this cup from me. And the cup was a metaphor for what one had to do in life or what one was experiencing in life. And what was inside the cup was, the metaphor is drinking the cup, drinking what's inside the cup, that's what your life includes. And in the Old Testament, a lot of times the cup referred to the judgment of God and that God would be pouring the cup onto his disobedient people. Well, if Jesus went through with the cross, God would pour the judgment and that sinful humans deserved onto him. And Jesus never sinned. So this cup, this pathway was, dare I say, revolting to Jesus' humanity. He had never sinned against his father. He did not deserve judgment. And this would be no minor slap on the wrist. This would be the excruciating agony of crucifixion. A shameful, humiliating, devastating destruction of Jesus and his reputation in public for everyone to see. He didn't deserve it. And he didn't have to go through with it. So I think Luke highlights here that the disciples were not the only ones that needed to pray to not enter into temptation. For in that moment, Jesus, in his full humanity, faced the temptation to walk away. 
And we take comfort in the fact that he immediately says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we can conclude, oh, it's just a quick prayer, Father. If it's possible, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Whatever you want, Father. No. No. The struggle is not over according to verses 43 and 44. And if you look carefully at your Bibles, they might have a footnote regarding verses 43 and 44 that say some manuscripts omit verses 43 and 44. So that means the, some of the earliest manuscripts and copies of Luke's gospel do not have verses 43 and verse 44. Yet many Luke scholars argue for their authenticity and their consistency with Luke's writing style, and it fits the narrative perfectly. They do not seem out of place. So what could have happened? Well, these verses reveal the frailty of Jesus' humanity. And in the early church, there was a huge debate early on about whether or not Jesus was fully God. Well, verses 43 and 44 do not strengthen that claim if that's all that you're focused on. And it's possible that some scribes struggled with verses 43 and 44. And we're considering this huge controversy about whether Jesus is God. And we see verse 43 and 44. We can't include that. That could be what happened. And later on, when that controversy died down, other scribes who knew about these verses reinserted them. We don't know for sure. I take them as completely authentic and belonging there. And look at what they say and the order in which they are said. Because this was a revelation for me this week. The order of these verses. So Luke 22 verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And, and there's nothing unusual about that in Luke. For there have been angels from the beginning. The angel appears to Zechariah and tells him, he and Elizabeth are going to have a son, even though they're beyond childbearing years. Then the angel appears to Mary and says she's going to bear God's son. And so angels appear periodically. Here comes another angel, and it strengthens Jesus. But here's the revelatory part for me this week. I always thought, what did the angel strengthen Jesus to do? Well, to go to the cross. And certainly, that is part of it. But look at the next phrase in verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. I always thought it was Jesus' prayer in the garden and he gets through that huge struggle and he's completely exhausted and then the angel comes along and strengthens him. And here, Luke is saying Jesus has made the request and then the angel comes to strengthen him. And then he can continue in prayer. Yes, Jesus prays, not my will but yours be done in verse 42. But it seems like though he said that in his head, it hasn't yet gotten to his heart and to his will. He knows that's what he should do. But he hasn't yet surrendered to it. And so he engages in this intense struggle. And notice Jesus is in agony. One of the only times in scripture this word is found, agony. And his mental and spiritual anguish affect him physically to the point that he sweats. 
and he's sweating so much that the sweat is dripping off his face and hitting the ground like great drops of blood. So think about times maybe when you've really worked out or you've gone running on a hot summer day and you're dripping with sweat. That's, that's Jesus through prayer. And his sweat could have been like when blood drops come off people and hit the ground or it could have been mixed with blood and apparently there's a medical condition for people under extreme stress that maybe these little blood vessels break a little under stress and then the blood mixes with the sweat so it looks like you're sweating blood or you are sweating blood. In any case, Jesus is undergoing this extreme stress, yet the angel strengthened him to go through this intense time of prayer. And sometime during it, the words, not my will, but yours be done, move from Jesus' head to his heart. And he agrees. And he surrenders. And he is ready to face the cross and all that leads up to it. So in verse 45, he rises up from prayer and he comes to the disciples and finds them sleeping from sorrow. Jesus has just passed the test of praying to not give in to temptation. But the disciples have not prayed. They sleep. So Jesus says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he's still speaking, a crowd comes led by Judas. And Judas goes up to kiss Jesus, which was a common way of greeting in that day. But this was no greeting. This was to identify who the soldiers were to arrest. And Jesus is not surprised. He does not resist but he exposes what has just happened. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And Son of Man is a title that Jesus used of himself, referring to the divine king who is given glory back in Daniel 7. And Judas betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss. And then the disciples get into the action. Remember, they're supposed to pray that they would not give into temptation, that they would align their will with God's will. Well, they see what's happening, and they say, should we strike? And without waiting for Jesus' response, they start swinging their swords, and one cuts off the ear of the high priest, and the other gospels reveal that one as Peter. But Jesus has just prayed to align his will to his Father's will, which is to go to the cross. And the disciples are not aligning to the Father's will. They are trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross by fighting. And Jesus puts a stop to it. No more of this. And he heals the high priest's servant's ear. In fact, he's so in control and in command of the situation that he also exposes the dark motives of those arresting him. They treat him like a revolutionary, coming with clubs and swords, expecting a violent resistance, yet he never advocated a violent revolution. He taught openly in the temple. Revolutionaries didn't go to the temple to preach their message where they could easily be arrested. So the legitimacy of this arrest is already suspicious, yet Jesus acknowledges that this is a time when darkness 
reigns for a short while, and he will go with them without resistance. But to go without resistance, he had to struggle through prayer to align his will to that of his father's. So the thrust of this text is that Jesus' prayer connected to his father's strength, which enabled him to overcome his great temptation. Jesus relinquished, renounced, surrendered, abandoned, and gave up his own will so that we might have life. Christ gave up his will to go through with the cross, and because of his willingness, we have or can have a reconciled relationship with the Father. It cost him a great struggle. So how do we respond? Well, response one is pretty obvious. We must praise and worship Jesus for his willingness to submit his will to his Father's will. And that willingness directly impacts you and me every day. We're saved from our sins. We have access to the Heavenly Father and all of his eternal resources. We have access to the Holy Spirit empowering us each day. Commentator George Guthrie writes, only to a certain extent can we empathize with Jesus for he alone could bear that particular moment and that responsibility, yet we must empathize with him as much as we can, realizing the pressure of our will versus God's will. We know how we struggle, and Jesus overcame that struggle. So we stop and we praise Jesus for his surrender and praise God for providing us with a high priest who can sympathize with our struggles. But then comes the harder response. Number two, we must learn to follow Jesus' example of giving up our will to align with God's will, the Father's will. And we learn this when we go through situations where we don't get what we want. It's one thing to talk theoretically about surrendering our will to the Lord's will. It's quite another when we're going through such a situation with all the emotion involved. And it's not easy to relinquish our will to align with God's will. Guthrie writes, we want to walk with God in the Garden of Eden, but we don't want to walk with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet the two gardens are a package tour with a specific itinerary. And in reality, the tour lasts a lifetime in reverse order, where we go through multiple Gethsemanes, learning to align our will to the Father's will until he leads us one day into the ultimate Garden of Eden in eternity. So we must learn to pray, releasing our will to God's Will And some Christian authors call this the prayer of relinquishment, the prayer of abandonment. It is a prayer that moves beyond our emotions and what we want to submitting to what the Father wants. Another author writes, In the school of Gethsemane, we learn to distrust whatever is of our own mind, thought, and will, even though it's not directly sinful. 
Jesus shows us the most excellent way, the way of helplessness, the way of abandonment, the way of relinquishment. My will be done is conquered by not my will, but yours be done. Same author writes, to applaud the will of God is not difficult until it comes to cross purposes with our will. And then the lines are drawn and the debate begins and the self-deception takes over. But in the school of Gethsemane, we learn my will, my way, my good must yield to a higher authority. And struggle is an essential feature of the prayer of relinquishment. Jesus struggled. Abraham struggled as he relinquished his son Isaac to be sacrificed. Moses struggled as he relinquished his understanding of how the deliverer of Israel should function. David struggled as he relinquished his son born by Bathsheba. Mary struggled as she relinquished control over her future. Paul struggled as he relinquished control over the desire to have the thorn in the flesh removed. Jesus struggled. You and I will struggle. Yet, the prayer of a relinquishment, of a real letting go, is a letting go with hope. Because of the character of God and his desire for good and our best in life. One author writes a prayer about this. Oh Lord, how do I let go? when I'm so unsure of things. I'm unsure of your will and I'm unsure of myself. But maybe that really isn't the problem at all. The truth of the, of the matter is I hate the very idea of letting go. I really want to be in control. I need to be in control. That, that's it, isn't it? I'm afraid to give up control, afraid of what might happen. Heal my fear, Lord. How good of you to reveal my blind spots even in the midst of my stumbling attempts to pray. Thank you, but now what do I do? How do I give up control? Jesus, please teach me your way of relinquishment. So how, how do we learn this prayer? I have three suggestions for you from various authors on the back of the bulletin. Um, they're quite simple to do, but hard to put into practice. Number one, meditate and pray through Philippians 2. And this is the passage of Jesus humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we talk about that prayer. We pray through it. The passage talks about our need to have the same attitude and we ask the Lord to strengthen us to have the same attitude as we meditate on Philippians 2. Or we can also, method two is to meditate on Jesus' prayers in the garden. Yes, every gospel talks about this incident, this event. So we go to the different gospels and, and work through the specific passages that talk about Jesus' prayers here and we, we learn these prayers and, and we pray them in those situations where we're not getting our way where things are not going how we want them to. And then, and then third, we can pray in a posture of release to God. And, and to do this, we lift up 
our arms, our hands, open hands to the Lord as if we are giving up to him that we're, we're not getting in our way. So you, you think of that person in your life, maybe in your family, your spouse, or, or someone else that you're trying to change, and it's not working. So you, you lift up your spouse, your, that person in your life, to the Lord. Or we lift up our children, and, and all that we wish was, was different. Or we lift up our friends and our confusion on how to help them through some of their struggles. Or we place in God's loving arms our future, our hopes, our, our dreams. We hold up our employer, our workplace, the things that we wish were different. Even our enemies, our anger, our desire for retaliation. We give it all into his hands. And then turn around and walk away. For he will care for everything as he sees fit. And this is a prayer. Sometimes we have to pray every day. As God walks us through that which we did not want to happen. So I want to lead you in this prayer practice as we close today. What is happening in your life right now where you're not getting your way? Or what has happened where things did not go like you wanted them to? And instead of responding with frustration, anger, despair, trying to control everything, let us join together in a prayer of release to God. And so as we pray, I want to invite you to hold out your hands to God. Hold out your hands to God. Your arms upraised. And what is it in your life that you must relinquish to God? Where you're not getting your way, where things are not going the way you want them to. What is it? Put it in your hands and, and lift it up to God. And you can pray. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Which means you're praying to not have to go through whatever it is you're facing. You're praying for the situation to change. You're praying to get your way. And sometimes God does give us that. But you must also pray the second part of the prayer. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And Lord God, you know all the situations and people and trouble that is being lifted to you right now in prayer. And we want to try and fix it. We want to try and manipulate it so that we get our way in our timetable so that we can be happy or content or at peace. And we think we know better than you. So we ask for you to send angels, send your spirit to strengthen us 
not give in to the temptation of resisting your will, of ignoring your will, of going our own way. And instead, to release it to you. Lord, you know best. We know little. Teach us to pray this prayer and continue to reveal the reality of your perfect and loving character to us. We pray in the name of Jesus who is willing to give up his will so that we could have life.